Good morning. You know how you know you're getting old? You get hurt watching a high school football game. Man, my back is killing me. So if you see me kind of stumbling around a little bit. Yeah, I got injured watching a high school football game. But, um, and then I was thinking as Brian was ripping the Broncos that maybe most Bronco fans starting to count down to Rocky Spring training, right? Like, that's right. Me, true. Did they do anything last year? They have, so I haven't heard anything. Just kidding. Uh, let's pray. Father, uh, we love you. And Lord, I don't have the ability to, in myself at all, to teach your word or even this subject of suffering and what we see in the book of Job, Lord. So I'm asking and very much recognizing how much I am in need of your help. You be the teacher, Lord. Help those who are hurting. Help us to strengthen our hope and our foundation in Jesus. In his name I pray. Amen. It's going to be hard. Like you smell that chili and your stomach's growling and whew, I'll try to go fast. Um, how many, you know, you have little kids or grandkids and they begin to ask questions like why this and why that? How many know what I'm talking about? You get peppered with why questions. There was a commercial recently where the little girl was asking her dad while he's driving all these you know, do fish breathe in water or something like that? Or why, why do fish um, not breathe air? And it was kind of a funny commercial. It got me to thinking about funny why questions that kids ask their parents. And I actually found this website that had compiled uh, tweets from parents who would tweet out something funny why question that their, their kid had asked. Um, one mom said, my seven-year-old just asked me, why mattress companies bother to put a design on the mattress when it's just going to be covered up by a sheet. And this is a perfect example of the constant questions kids ask that make you feel like an idiot. (laughs) Four-year-old just asked her mom, uh, how do mermaids go potty? I'm stumped as well. Any ideas, she tweeted. One mom said that my toddler asked for a necklace because she wants both a magazine and a necklace. Genius. (laughs) My son just asked me why spiders don't get stuck in their own webs, and now I'm questioning everything. (laughs) My three-year-old asked me, this is a dad talking here, my three-year-old asked me if quesadillas grow on trees, and I was just like, not yet, girl, but dream big, dream big. And then uh, the last one, my son just asked me why anyone would want a house phone because they don't even have any games on them. And then I died of old age. (laughs) Pretty good stuff there. Two things that are stumbling blocks for most people's faith or believing in God. The first one is God's invisibility. You know, he's invisible. You can't see him. I've never seen God, quote unquote. Well, Jesus came to clear that up when he came as a man. It was the Christmas story. But Jesus is back in heaven. So the invisibility of God now is made clear 
and demonstrated who he is, the realness of who he is, and the love that we have for one another. First John says that. And then the reality of suffering. Why would God allow a good God, an all-powerful God, allow suffering? So we've been trekking through this series called Longing for the King, and Job has nothing to do <laughs> with the, the king part, but Job is part of the wisdom literature in the Bible, where you have the book of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. And we've been reading the Bible together, a lot of us, since Easter. And so we've already, if you've done that, you've already read through the book of Job. Job's a trip. It's a, it's a strange book, but the gospel is right in the center of the book of Job. And we're going to look kind of, I'm going to try my very best to give you an overview of the message of Job and what you can take away from it for your own life. So when we ask the question, why is there suffering? I mean, who hasn't said, why, God? Why did this happen? And there's three things I think we can do when, when we go through suffering. Is we can reject God, which most people do. They get mad at God and say, he can't be real. And I know people who suffered that they just never recovered. Or we can redefine God through suffering and say, well, God, maybe he's not good. Maybe he's not all powerful. Or we can rectify suffering with Jesus, someone who's very acquainted with suffering himself, who suffered for us on our behalf so that we could have new life and eternal life. So let's look at the background of Job. Right out of the gates in chapter 1, Verses 1 through 5, it says, There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man uh, of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. There's that hyperlink that we've been seeing throughout the Old Testament. To fear God is to allow God to define what is good and evil rather than ourselves. He had seven sons and three daughters. He owned 7,000 sheep. 3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Job's sons would take turns preparing feasts in their home, and they would also invite their three sisters to celebrate with them. When these celebrations ended, sometimes after several days, Job would purify his children. Must have been some party there, house party. He would get up early in the morning and offer a burnt offering for each one of them. For Job said to himself, perhaps my children have sinned and have cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular practice. He was a prosperous man, richest in his area. So he was prosperous spiritually, relationally, and materially. That's the background of this guy we're talking about. So then, let's move to the tests that Job has to undergo. We see that beginning in verse 6 through verse 10 of chapter 2. So it says this, it says, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where do you come 
Then Satan answered the Lord from roaming about the earth and walking around. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? For there is no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man uh, turning away from evil, fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, does Job fear you for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all he has on every side? You've blessed his work and increased his possessions. And then it says that Satan was given permission to bring catastrophe into Job's life without harming Job physically. There's a lot going on there. Job is, is, if you want to read it right, it's a courtroom scene. And the word Satan literally means accuser or slanderer. In, in the New Testament, we, and we translate the word diablos into devil in, in Greek from Greek to English. And in, in Hebrew, Satan is, it's, it's the Satan, literally. And he's accusing. He's the accuser of God. He accuses God and he accuses us towards each other and towards God. And so he's saying, look, um, your servant Job, he fears you because you've given him a great life. You've given him the easy life. And I think it's, it's interesting that, you know, Satan accurately analyzes why many people trust God. Because when things are going good, God's good. When things are going bad, then can I trust him? I mean, that's the heart of the whole book of Job over and over. And so as we, without reading it all, Satan was allowed to bring this adversity into Job's life. His, all of his kids were killed. There was a fire and it burnt and killed all his animals, all his wealth. He lost everything in a blink of an eye. And it says that, he, the first test that he fell on his face and he worshiped and he said, naked I come, came into this world, naked I'm going to leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord that the Lord gives and takes away. We've sang, we sing that song. And then Satan goes again, you know, before the Lord and he's, he says, let me actually physically harm him and then you'll see how he'll turn on you. And so he's allowed to put these boils on Job's body. And it's kind of gross. They talk about him scraping his arm and from his head to the bottom of his feet, he had boils everywhere. And Job is, does not, you know, curse God. He, he stays faithful. And it says that his wife, after this happened to him, she said, do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Don't forget, the book of Job is poetry. It's very ancient. And it's a, it's a parable in many ways. So as you're reading it, we don't make doctrine out of the book of Job. It's, there's a whole another purpose that this book is, is serving us. Let's look at Job's response. So he didn't curse God. He didn't get mad at God. But he, now he's hurting physically himself and he's lost everything. 
And it's that question of why do righteous people suffer? Why do the good suffer? That's a big question in this culture that's going on and the dialogue that's happening here. So chapter 3 through 37 is a dialogue between Job and his friends. And they're coming to try to help him solve his, his deal here. But here's a little bit of Job's response to his pain. Why does God, there's that word why, why does God bother giving light to the miserable? Why bother keeping bitter people alive? Those who want in the worst way to die and can't, who can't imagine anything better than death, who count the day of their death and burial the happiest day of their life. What's the point of life when it doesn't make sense, when God blocks all the roads to meaning? Instead of bread, I get groans for my supper, then leave the table and and vomit my anguish. The worst of my fears has come true, and what I've dreaded most has happened. My repose is shattered, my peace destroyed, no rest for me ever. Death has invaded life. Uplifting for chili cook-off, I get it. But if you have not suffered in life, you will at some point. It is an inevitable part of the human experience. God does not cause suffering. The mystery is, why does he allow it? That's what we all have to deal with. That's what the book of Job is trying to say, is can we trust God even when life hurts, when life is painful. Nicky Gumbel said, suffering is not a problem for all religions. It is an acute problem for the Judeo-Christian tradition because we believe that God is both good and all-powerful. It's tricky. I guarantee if you've been walking with Jesus very long or even talked to somebody, people struggle with this reality of suffering. They struggle with that. Why is suffering a part of the human experience? The first thing I would say from me is, I don't know. (laughs) It's hard to comprehend. Sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know. Why in the world would this happen? Why would God allow it? And sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know. Uh, My deceased cousin, she passed away back in July. Her 10-year-old grandson was struck by a car on his scooter and died just a couple weeks ago. Janelle and I went to this little boy's funeral, and he just played his first football game, scored his first touchdown. Why? Why did that happen? Janelle and I, on our day off on on Monday, we played golf, and we paired up with this couple, probably in their early 60s, something like that, and he was only playing, she was riding, and she didn't say a whole lot. And we were like, well, maybe she's shy or something, and probably about two or three holes in, he said, Kate told us to come over to him. He said, my wife has pretty bad Alzheimer's. That's why she doesn't talk a whole lot, but she likes to get out and the fresh air does a lot of good for her. And I thought, my gosh, she's young. And why? My good friend, Tim Lovell, uh, was a pastor. We were pastored together and he mentored me. And I remember Years ago, his mom caught this, had some kind of disease that was super painful and that was ultimately going to take her life. And watching her on her deathbed, he was just like, why? And his dad was a pastor 
as well. And he said, Dad, he said, uh, why do you think God's letting her suffer like this? And his dad said, I don't know. Sometimes that's the most spiritual thing you can say. It's, I don't know. I don't have a Band-Aid for, that, for the, the, those kind of serious difficulties that people go through. Sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know. Sometimes suffering is the result of our own sin. Been there? You, you make a mistake, you blow it. It's an inevitable consequence to my own sin. And it's also the result of others' sin. War is human selfishness, national selfishness. Starvation, we blame God, and yet people are starving in parts of the world because people don't feed them. We have the resources, so we, and yet we blame God. And it's just easy to blame Him on these big-scale things. But then even when somebody makes a choice, adultery, something like that, why did God let that happen? No, somebody makes choices in this. Too easy. God's an easy target on our why questions when we need to dig a little bit deeper. And then lastly, suffering happens as a result of a fallen and broken world. We live in a broken world. But Jesus came, the good news is, to redeem, to turn things around. And he's going to get the last word. He came the first time, you know, to, to, to show us what God was like through his life. He submitted himself to death so that he could take the sting of death. He rose from the grave, showing forth our future with him who trust and believe in him. Um, a, a professor, John Walton, said the point of Job is focusing on how God works in the world not how he works things out in heaven. I think that's important. How, does he work, how, does he, how is he with us in the middle of our suffering? How is he miss in, in our midst with us? Because he is, and he walks with us. He doesn't stop and prevent everything, but he's in the middle of it with us. Somehow in his, his divine wisdom, he knows how things are going to work for good from the, from the eternity past into eternity future. We can count on that. So let's look at his friend's response now. Job responds to his pain, then his friends are chapter 4 through, through 37. And again, don't make doctrine out of the book of Job, especially these chapters, because you're going to see at the end, God tells Job's friends that they did not speak accurately of him, even in their nice poetic religiosity words that they, they use. First, it's, it's Eliphaz. He basically says, hey man, seek God. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Seek God. You, you got this. Bildad basically says, stop whining. Stop whining. And then Zophar, he says, you must have sinned, Job. Because that's what was huge in this culture, was God is just, and if you suffer, it's because you sinned. Not an acceptance of a fallen, broken world. It was on you. But that felt real good for Job, right? You sinned, man. Eliehu basically said, try harder. Try harder. And then his wife just says, curse God and, and die. Okay. High-sounding high cliches, right? Religiosity spoken by people who had probably never suffered. Sometimes we... 
we're, we, we make the same mistake that they do when someone's in pain. They were trying to solve a problem with a Band-Aid. Problem is, is someone has a missing limb, a Band-Aid is not what they need. They need a lot more care than that. And I know we all feel uncomfortable when someone's in pain because we don't know what to say. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's just like, ah, what do you say? The problem is, is we don't know how to sit with people in their pain because we don't know how to sit in our own pain. We haven't even practiced that. And we make those mistakes. The, the difference between empathy and sympathy is sympathy is I have compassion on someone's pain. Empathy is I have compassion as well as I can empathize because I've been there too. Someone who gets a diagnosis of cancer, I, I can sympathize with them, but I haven't had that yet. But someone who's been through that has compassion and empathy. And that's God working as he comforts others 2 Corinthians 1, 3 says, comfort those with the same comfort you've received from God. Let's fast forward to God's response to all of this. And the interesting part is God doesn't give reasons why Job suffered. He just says, trust me. But God's listening to Job in this conversation, and he kind of has enough. And it takes a turn in chapter 38 where God says, hey, Job, got a question for you, my man. Where were you when I stretched out the universe? Where were you when I created the animals? Like, with what wisdom were you with me in on that? And Job's kind of just shrinking in his chair. Like, he's, he's being put in his place to question the one who's all wise, all good, all knowing. Job, I've been with you, I'm going to be with you, and I'll always be with you. And then he says in Job 40, verse 8, he says this to Job, will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove you're right? That's a powerful verse. God can't be just if there's suffering in the world. That's not true. We don't know how he's working everything from eternity past to eternity future. It's easy to discredit God and and blame him. And we don't know what's going on. Then it says that in Job uh, 42 verse 7, after the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, I'm angry with you and your two friends, for you have not spoken accurately about me as my servant Job has. Let's shift this just a bit. Let's look at the power of hope. Because even though Job was hurting, throughout the book of Job, there's little, little snippets of him having hope in God in the middle of all of his pain. The, I was reading a couple articles about hope in the, the, our physical brain and how when someone has hope, it releases like the dopamines and all the feel-good stuff, the chemicals in our, in our bodies. And when someone's hopeless, they don't have that same chemistry going on. It's, it's, a, it's a spiritual and a literal physical thing, the power of hope. The power of hope is not a wish. You blow out your birthday candles and you're wishing for a Tonka truck, right? That, that's, hope is the confident expectation of the faithfulness of God, that he will be true to who he says he will be. And I, how many people like the TV show Lost? Two of us, great. 
This is going to be an amazing illustration, but Lost is by far my favorite uh, drama TV show series. And it's about, at the very beginning, it's about a plane that splits in two in the air and they crash on a deserted island. And there's people who survived and so forth. And um, in the show, early on, you, you meet a woman named Rose and her husband, Bernard. Bernard gets up and he goes to the bathroom in the back of the plane. And then the plane breaks off and the back of the plane goes somewhere you don't know. And you think they're all gone. And, and the, like episode two, Rose, who survived, she's sitting on the beach and she's kind of looking out at the ocean contemplating some things and somebody comes up to her and is beginning to console her for losing Bernard and she says oh he's not dead he's not dead and they're like oh he's dead <laughs> like he, he, he gone for sure but um when she had this confidence though this hope and the writers must have known what they were doing because you end spoiler alert if you're ever going to watch Lost but the back of the plane was just on the other side of the island and they meet up and Bernard and Rose live happily ever after. So it's powerful. Job says this in his pain in Job 19, 25 through 27. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body, I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I'm overwhelmed at the thought. What a beautiful passage. That's the resurrection. He's he's foretelling the gospel in the book of Job about the resurrection. My redeemer is Jesus who died and rose again and said that he was the resurrection and the life and whoever would believe in him, even though they die, they'll live. That's the resurrection. There will be a physical resurrection. And we can trust him. That's the hope that we're building our lives upon. It's not this world or or money or possessions or popularity. It's on the reality of the resurrection. That's the cornerstone of our faith. If Jesus stayed dead, he'd just be a martyr. But he didn't. He had a mission and a plan to defeat death, to put our sin on the cross, and then to rise again and to destroy the work of the, the devil. And then he says this in Job 16, though he slay me, I will hope in him. He's basically, that's a metaphor for no matter what happens, I'm going to trust him. No matter what, I'm not going to let suffering and pain and difficulty rip my faith apart. I'm going to let it make me stronger. That's what he's saying. So what can we learn from Job from a practical standpoint? The first of all is when you go through pain, I need to grieve my loss. Job did that well at the beginning. You got to grieve. We in the West, especially in America, we stink at grieving. Like we would rather avoid it. And yet God gave us that emotion to help us, to help cleanse us from our pain, to grow from our pain. Don't skip over grief when you go through suffering, when you go through loss. Don't skip over it. Be present in it. Don't, Don't work it up. But just when you feel grief, let yourself grieve. My mom passed away suddenly, March 15th of 2018. And I did not let myself grieve. And I just got mad. I was mad at death. I was mad at, you know, my dad having to be alone, you know, without her. I just just got mad. Can you relate a little bit, somebody? (laughs) Thank you. 
And I just don't do sad well, period. Like, I don't, I'd rather, angry, sure. Sad, no, I don't want to do that. My dad passed away November 20th of 2020, a little over two years later. And I had told myself, I am going to let myself grieve the loss of my father. And the day he passed away, uh, he, the day he passed away, after I said goodbye, I went outside and I had one of those heaving cries, man. It was, grief was coming from my toenails <laughs> of my body, like literally. I'm so glad that I did that because I think I was making up for not grieving my mom at the same time too. And it helped me get through that. And I, I would encourage you, grieve your loss. It's very important. And grief is funny. It's like being at the, the beach. You know, it can go out with, with the wave and then it can come back in and you don't even see it coming. Secondly, I need to accept my loss. When you go through something difficult, you got to accept. I want to put a, a slide up on the screen. This is called the cycle of grief. You've probably talked about this. Maybe this is a hair different language, but let's start with shock. That's the first one. When you go through something, the first reaction is, I'm in shock. Like, what just happened? And then it moves to denial, where you're saying, this is a bad dream. Like, ah, this can't be real. Then you get angry, and we get angry at God or the devil or the person or something. And then you begin to bargain, coulda, shoulda, woulda. You make deals. If I would have just done that or if I would have been there, I could have prevented this from happening. And then you go to acceptance. And acceptance is the goal of grieving, that this really happened. And I really don't have any power to control this other than my response to the pain or the suffering. And so that, you know, the, the, when pain is fresh, the acceptance, if that's a piece of pie, a pie chart, acceptance is one little small sliver. Those other pieces are huge. But over time, as acceptance gets bigger and bigger, you're still going to experience shock, denial, anger, and bargaining if you lost a loved one and their birthday comes on or Christmas or your favorite song or something, you're going to go through those a little bit and you, it's okay. Like that's part of being human. But the goal is that you, you realize that God's good. This happened and he's going to work all things for good. Jerry Bridges said, God in his love always wills what is best for us. In his wisdom, he knows what is best for us. And in his sovereignty, he has the power to bring it about. And lastly, I need to let God redeem my loss. That's what happened to Job. The end of his life, he was more prosperous, had more children. It doesn't mean he wasn't hurting for his first family and situation, but God lifted him out of the ash heap, so to speak. Jesus and his humanity, when you read the Gospels, he had an understanding of human suffering. And he didn't try to give band-aids or cliches. He, he, he said over and over, I'm going to suffer at the hands of sinful men. On the third day, I'm going to rise. And he went through all kinds of suffering, totally acquainted with suffering. 
Jesus said to his disciples, which is to us today in John 16, 33, in this life, you're never going to have any problems. He didn't say that. In this life, you're going to have trials and sorrows of many kind. But take courage. I've overcome the world. I've overcome. He has overcome. Our Redeemer lives. We're going to stand with him on that day. A great passage is Romans 8.28. What a promise. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Leave that up for a second. Notice how he says, we know. He didn't say we see. That's a faith word. You know, I'm in the middle of something difficult. You go through something. God, I know you're going to work it for good. And it says, God causes all things, not some things. All things includes your mistakes, your own failures, my failures. He's even going to work those for good if we cooperate with him. He says he works it together for good. God does not call our pain good. He doesn't call evil good. He doesn't cause or call our suffering good. He says he will work it for your good. Jerry Setzer is a guy who's a pastor who lost his wife and kids in a car wreck as he was following them in another car, saw it happen. And he wrote a book about grief and and suffering, a powerful book. He says this, can good result from a bad experience? If so, then it is not the experience of the loss that becomes the defining moment of our lives. It is how we respond to the loss that matters. That response will largely determine the quality, the direction, and impact of our lives. St. Patrick's Day, Troy Eggers' birthday, March 17th. Um, We celebrate St. Patrick's Day, but I don't think most people really understand why we do that. Um, It's not about shamrock shakes and green beer. It's actually about the reality that St. Patrick, Patrick was a person who lived in England, was taken against his will into slavery, into Ireland, and eventually escaped, went back to England, heard the gospel, became a follower of Jesus, and he goes back to the place that, of his pain to bring the gospel to the Irish. That's what St. Patrick's Day is really about. There's your history lesson for the day. So you can celebrate a little more happy this year. But um, he went back to the place of his pain. He let God redeem his loss. And read anything you can about St. Patrick and, and, and his story. It's really powerful in the whole Celtic Christianity movement that was going on there. I want to put that slide back up. And I want you to ask Ask yourself the question, or let me ask you this. What is the most painful experience of your life? What are you maybe going through right now that's painful? Where are you in this cycle? Is the acceptance piece in the midst of your pain getting bigger and growing? And your faith is growing? That's the goal. Job is in the Bible to help us trust God. That's the ultimate thing, and to see God at work. 
I don't know why a good God who's all-powerful allows it. But I know he's smarter than us. I know he's more wise than any of us and that he can be trusted in the midst of this. And he's promised that in the life to come, there will be no sorrow, no sin, no suffering. That's, that'll be, all be done when he comes back. How many are looking forward to that? That's, it, and how you be ready for that, that day when he comes again where you'll either meet him in your own death or he'll come again is to build your life on him. Become a follower of Jesus. Accept who he is. Agree with him that he's savior, that he came and he died to defeat your enemies of, of sin, death, and the evil one. And agree with him that he's Lord. And because he's Lord, it means he's all wise and he knows everything. And he says, do this, do that, put into practice his teachings and you become like him. And that's how we prepare. His end goal for all of our discipleship is that we become people who love like he loves and forgive and walk in truth, and walk in hope, walk in wisdom. That's the fear of the Lord. Um, on your way out, on this little table uh, underneath the offering box by the doors, put together a little card that I wanted to give to you. Um, the, the front side is Romans 5, 3 through 5. And it talks about the power of suffering from a New Testament understanding and how suffering creates character and perseverance and so forth that we can rejoice. And on the other side, there's a handful of other how to suffer right scriptures and how the power of suffering changes us as, as followers of Jesus that we can, you know, as he suffered and we, we can be blessed as we seek him and grow in our faith. So we stand with me. Christy's going to lead us in a scaled down chorus of blessed be your name. Let's sing this together and then we'll get to some chili.
Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for one another. Lord, we accept that we live in a a broken world, but you came to redeem it and to redeem us. God, I pray for everyone who's suffering at the moment and their pain is real and present. God, I pray for your healing and your comfort in the way that only you can. And God, um, I just pray for those that are dealing with uh, relational problems, health problems, financial hardships. God, you are our redeemer and you live and we trust you today. In your name we pray. Amen.